Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, welcome. I'm so glad you're joining today. Today we are going to continue to explore the magnificence and the majesty of Yerushalayim. This is an important chapter of Tilim. I'll tell you why. <laughs> it's an important chapter of Tilim because like amongst other things, Jerusalem is a really big deal to Jewish people. As mentioned in some of the previous episodes, there are a number of very important cities to Jewish people. Hebron is also a very, very important city. But you can't get away from the fact that uh, somehow Jerusalem has always had center stage. At least since it became Jerusalem. And that's, that's very telling, and it's, it's, it's compelling. It behooves us to ask the question, why? Wouldn't you want to understand why Jerusalem is so important to the Jewish people? Why is it that, by and large, this municipality, this city, has always captured the attention of the Jewish people? Obviously, it's the base of Migdash. This was the place where God's presence was manifest amongst our people. It's the people, the people who would make pilgrimages for centuries. We make pilgrimages thrice annually to Yerushalayim. This was the place we gathered together. Both of these virtues or superlatives have been addressed in significant detail over the last two episodes. We talked about the concept of Yerushalayim being a holy and heavenly city. It being a reflection of, of a higher reality. And as such, the kind of city that would naturally strike spirituality, serenity, some kind of sacred or holy moment, you know, when a person thinks about it, if he's Jewish. And we talked about the idea of unity. The unity that's apparent not only in the corollary or melding together of heaven and earth, but even in the layout of neighborhoods, even in the structures, even in the material appearance of Yerushalayim, and certainly in its name, there's an emphasis on that unity. We talked about the Shvatim, the tribes who took the trouble to journey to Jerusalem for the pilgrim festivals. 
It's interesting to point out, I didn't mention this in the previous lectures, but it's interesting to point out that the Gemara in Meseches Psachim, in Tractate Psachim, the Gemara talks to us about the fact that Jerusalem was not endowed by God with luscious fruits such as the famous Bikat Ginosar, this very fertile valley in the north of Israel, or the beautiful hot springs of Tiberias, you know, like kind of the Alps. You go to a, a gorgeous, beautiful place physically to rejuvenate yourself. That wasn't the case in Jerusalem. In fact, there was no, nothing attractive about Jerusalem per se, other than the fact that this was Hashem's city. And despite the fact that there was nothing inherently beautiful on a material or literal level, the Mishnah, as we talked about in Mesechet Avot, in the fifth chapter, the eighth Mishnah talks about this idea that people were never uncomfortable we're never unhappy to be in Jerusalem. They didn't say, Tsarli Hamokim, Sha'olin Birushalayim. The place I'm finding lodges here is, you know, crowded. It was crowded. According to some of the versions in the Gemara, there could have been millions. According to one episode in the Talmud, as many as 12 million people having converged one Passover on the city of Jerusalem. And yet, this was the place that attracted people's, Jewish people's, attention for one and one reason only. It's spiritual magic. And this was the city that Hashem has designated for His holy people as His holy city. And we spent a lot of time talking about those virtues. And I think that, I think that as we spoke of in the first of, of, of lectures, Jerusalem 1 and 2, we talked about the, the uh, Ma'am Lois coins this pithy phrase to introduce this chapter, Psalm 122. He says, This psalm bespeaks the virtues of Jerusalem, the yearning, the thirst, the craving, the desire of Jewish people for this city. So we talked about the virtues of Yerushalayim itself. And then as the Ma'am Loyas puts it, from verse 4 onward, we started to speak about Maila Hashniya, the second virtue of Jerusalem, not the city, but the people. Mitzad Anosheha. And that's the idea of Shom Olushvatim. Tribes went up, and we talked about the tribes of Israel. Today, as we move forward in this series, we're going to begin with verse 5 and hopefully make it into verse 6 as well. We'll be speaking not about the city per se as the house of the Shechina by virtue of the, the Beis HaMikdash being at the epicenter, at the heart of Yerushalayim. Not about the people who went up to the Beis HaMikdash for such was the nature of those pilgrim festivals. But rather... And again, I'm going to quote the Ma'am Lois. I'm a bookie guy. I have the Sefer in front of me. And I don't know where else he took this from, although he goes on to quote Rabbeinu Yosef Chiyun fairly swiftly. But I believe the first line is the Ma'am Lois is alone. He says, Now we will address the third, and this will be 
the final virtue addressed in this psalm because we're going to start talking about prayers and peace and yearning. He says the final virtue of Yerushalayim is not only the fact that it housed the Beis Hamikdash, but that there is virtue to the city of Jerusalem in and of itself. What would that be? Why did people come up to Yerushalayim if not for the fact that the Beis Hamikdash was there? Why was it called the Holy City if not for the Temple Mount being at its epicenter? This is precisely what we will be addressing now. Key, because, says David HaMelech as he pours forth in prayer, in this spiritual profusion in which David HaMelech is bearing his heart and sharing with us the deepest secrets about his capital, the city that he was uniquely privileged to found, the city that continues to bear his name, Ir David. Kishama Yashvu Chisos. Because it was the city of thrones. Seats. What kind of seats? Seats. Chisos. Lemishpot. Seats for justice. Thrones for judgment. Kisos. Leves David, thrones for the house of King David, or David. What does this mean? We will begin our excavation of the verse by digging into the words of Rashi. And I mean digging in because I'm going to read the words very carefully and I'm going to try to the best of my ability to read into the words of Rashi. He says, quote, it is not only because this city is founded around and houses the Beis Hamikdash, Gam also the city itself, the city of Yerushalayim, also houses the Shechina, the presence of Hashem. Why? Why would a city house the presence of God save the sanctuary, the Beis Hamikdash? He says the Shechina is there. The Shechina, as if, takes a seat. Takes a seat. I, I wasn't clear about this, Rashi. I have to consult others, but I'm pretty sure this is the meaning now. The, the Shechina, the presence of God, takes a seat. To judge the, the nations. And I first learned this, Rashi. I wasn't sure what he meant. I thought maybe... Maybe the Sanhedrin, maybe the high court, which we'll hear about soon, represents the Shekhinah. But no, no, because the high court's job or mandate was not to judge the nations. Their mission and purpose was to judge the people of Israel, to adjudicate the matters of doubt that might arise within the rubric of Torah observance and the proper understanding of Hashem's Torah. So when he talks about here, Lishbod Bahemes Umos, when he talks here about judging the nations, who judges the nations if not the judge of all judges, the king of all kings? So Yerushalayim actually became the place from which Hashem judges the nations. And perhaps this explains to us why other faith systems and nations 
have continued their morbid fascination over Yerushalayim, the only city in the world that has been so coveted by the whole world. Conquered, destroyed, built, reconquered, redestroyed, and rebuilt no less than 23 times over the last three millennia. There isn't a city like it in the world. Not Mecca, not Medina, not Rome, and certainly not Washington. My dear friends, there is something about this city that has transfixed nations, that has somehow piqued their imagination. It is as if people believe or think whoever controls Jerusalem has dominion over the globe. There's no evidence for that. It hasn't panned out in real time, but that seems to be kind of the subconscious undercurrent. What's it about? Well, indeed, judgment will issue forth from all nations. But that judgment is from Hashem, from God Himself. And the Shekhinah is the manifestation of the Divine Presence. In perhaps other words, Every human being who walks the face of this globe from San Francisco to Swahili has a connection to Yerushalayim. Not the Jewish connection. Not the connection of unity and oneness of a nation which is embodied for us, Am Yisrael. But everybody is still connected to Yerushalayim because there is a proverbial throne of judgment from their issues forth judgment for Ha'uma, for the nations. Fascinating idea. I did not find a Midrashic source for Rashi's words, at least not in entirety. I'll share with you soon a cross-reference from a Medrash It seems to me, and I could be wrong, that this is a unique Rashi idea. And then Rashi adds, but there's a plurality here. It says, chisos, and then it says, kisot. There's chairs and chairs, thrones and thrones. So what's the second set of thrones? Kisot lebeis David? He says, that refers to kisot melucha. That refers to the royal house of the Jewish people, the dominion of David. Rashi's words are perhaps augmented, maybe made clearer or crisper when you contrast it with the commentary of Rabbeinu David Kimchi. I just uh, I want to point out that we're, we're live on Facebook and YouTube, but if you have any questions, and I will do my best to respond to them, all you need to do is just uh, type something into the live chat on, on the YouTube live. I don't monitor the Facebook. And I'm really happy that you're joining, just saying. And if you're joining for the first time, please be so kind as to subscribe. YouTube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. And uh, let's keep learning Torah together. Anyway, we're having our lunch and learn. I'm, I'm uh, teaching. I hope you're reading or enjoying. And uh, if not, food for the body, certainly food and nourishment for the mind, heart, and soul. On to Radak. So Radak says, Kis ot, he says, Lashon Rabbim. Very interesting comment. Radak, I think, is addressing this idea that 
if it's a chair or throne for the Shekhinah, if that's the judgment, it should have said, Ki la mishpat. A throne for the king of all kings, for the judge. But it says, Chisot. That's plural. Then, it comes back with yet another plural expression. So Radak says there's a Lashen Rabbim going on here. But Radak's explanation isn't really that clear to me because he says, Chad l'shechina, one for the presence of God, v'chad l'malchut, and one for the royalty, the house of David, based David. So Kisa is based David, the house for the royal family of David and Melech, multiple monarchies. So that's why maybe it says Chisot. But it doesn't seem to address the question of Chisot le Mishpat. So I want to put that on a, a back burner. There is something plural going on here. There is something, there's something afoot here. This verse doesn't, doesn't read simply. It, it actually doesn't. What does that mean? What does it mean? Seats, seats of justice. Both Rashi and Radaka telling us that these proverbial seats of justice are talking about that which houses the divine presence for the purpose of justice. Not the divine presence for the purpose of the divine presence, as in the Asuli Migdash, as the Torah says to the Jewish people after the giving of the Torah, you will make for me a sanctuary. The Rambam, Maimonides, is of the opinion that that is the verse that speaks not only about the Mishkan, the traveling tabernacle built by Moshe Rabbeinu for the Israelites as they moved through the Sinai Desert, but rather that verse is the one that mandates the mitzvah of building the Beit HaMikdash, the Beit HaBechira, the chosen home on the chosen mountain. That's in Yerushalayim. So that's the Shekhinah. That's the divine presence, the purpose of which is vishachanti bitocham, so that I will dwell amongst them. Maimonides Rambam says in the opening of Hilchas Beis HaBechira that the purpose of the Beis HaMikdash was makoim muchon la'asais be'yavaydas akarbonis, a place in which the Jewish people would be able to fulfill their mitzvot. The mitzvah is not to build a repository for the Shekhinah. The mitzvah is to do your mitzvahs. And you have to build a Beis HaMikdash, because without a Beis HaMikdash, you cannot perform its many mitzvot. What will be the result of that? <laughs> the result will be that the Shekhinah will be amongst you. Nachmanides sharply disagrees. He says, the Asuli Migdash, the verse read straightforwardly says, make a Migdash and Vishachanti. So according to Nachmanides, the purpose of the Beis Migdash is a, an area to house the actual Ten Commandments, as the world calls it, the Ark and the Cherubim, which becomes the, the satellite dish, the place where God communes with the Jewish people or connects with us from. And incidentally, that's still the case because, as the Rebbe explains in a fascinating rumination, based on a nuance and detail later on in those very same laws of Maimonides, the Ark is still on the Temple Mount. It's just very deep inside in a hidden secret catacomb. Indiana Jones never found it. And it continues to radiate with the Shekhinah. Only it's subterranean rather than overt and obvious. At any rate, that's Shekhinah 
for the purpose of Shekhinah, whether the Beis HaMikdash is about doing mitzvot and that brings the Shekhinah, or the Beis HaMikdash was built in order to house the Shekhinah, this is the idea of Vishachanti, Hashem says, I wish to dwell amongst you. But we're not speaking about that now. We're speaking about the Shekhinah, God's presence as God judges. Because any nations who are listening, take heed, God will judge. And those who prosecute the Jewish people will pay the ultimate price. Nobody gets away with anything. The king of all kings, the judge of all judges is watching and everything shall come to its proper place. And where does that judgment take place? Yerushalayim. It's almost like there's a Jewish Jerusalem and a Gentile Jerusalem. There's the fascination or fixation that the Jewish people have with Jerusalem. It's understood. It's because of the Beis HaMikdash. But then there's a an, a, a more an international, a pluralistic message, something universal about Jerusalem. Here's where God judges. You know, Rosh Hashanah is the day of judgment. Yom Hadin. Who does God judge on Rosh Hashanah? The answer is Kol Bo'e Olam. All those who walk the face of the earth. Certainly all of humanity. I've shared this before on various lectures or episodes I delivered about Rosh Hashanah. You must know that Rosh Hashanah is not only a Jewish day. I once heard from one of the Rebbe's secretaries, Rabbi Krinsky, he shared that there was a New York Times reporter named Ari Goldman who asked him if he would have a chance to ask the Rebbe for a New Year's greeting. This is one year before Rosh Hashanah. I don't, I don't remember if it was early 80s maybe. So... Rabbi Krinsky arranges, asks the Rebbe, and he, allow, he arranges with Ari Goldman to be at the back alley behind the Rebbe's house on President Street. The Rebbe was leaving from his house, I believe, to the Ohel, to visit the Ohel, the resting of his father-in-law. I don't recall that, I'm not certain enough. And he, it was times when he left from his house, so the Rebbe comes out the back door, and Ari Goldman comes over, and he quickly asks the Rebbe a few questions. And the Rebbe wishes him a Happy New Year, and there was a photographer, a girl of color, and she took a picture of the Rebbe speaking to this New York Times reporter, and the Rebbe wished her a Happy New Year. And about, I don't know, two or three minutes into the drive, the Rebbe asks Rabbi Krinsky if he has his cell phone with him. In those days, a mobile phone was a big deal. <laughs> the average person didn't have a phone in his pocket. Rabbi Krinsky had a phone in the car because he would have to do his work. He would be with the Rebbe at the Ohel. For sure, the Ohel. He was going to be with the Rebbe at the Ohel. So he says he does. The Rebbe says... Do you have the number to contact Ari Goldman? And the New York Times reporter had a cell phone then. This must have been in mid to late 80s. He calls Ari Goldman, and the, the Rebbe asked him to convey that he should tell the photographer, who was presumably not Jewish, that when he wished her a happy new year, that wasn't just a proverbial thing, that he meant it. Because each member of the human family is judged on Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is a universal day. It commemorates the creation of Adam and Eve. They weren't Jewish. The first Jews are Adam, Abraham, and Sarah. So there's this idea of Hashem judging the nations. And when this started to become clear to me, I said, wow. So, so it's not just that there's an obsession with the Jewish people. The, 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 the fixation of a Jerusalem is actually a reflection of a deeper connection that every human being has with this city. And truth be told, there is a fascination, sometimes 
a morbid fascination that people of the world have with Jerusalem. Which doesn't make much sense. I mean, it's true that there is a major faith system that figures Jerusalem into its repertoire, and there is another major faith system that later inducted Jerusalem into its repertoire, centuries later, and that was for political reasons at the time. So, but, but why? Why did they have that fascination? And this explains it to me. I might be wrong, but this is very compelling. This is very compelling. We're using this plural terminology, chisot mishpat, and we're referring to the judgment that God meets out to all the nations. By the way, judgment doesn't have to be a bad thing. People can be judged for the good also. Those who live lives of morality, righteousness, ethics, decency, Hashem judges them too. There are good nations. And it comes from Jerusalem. Now the Mitzudah's David says something very interesting. He takes a radically different path than Rashi and Radak. The Mitzudah maintains that the Chisot, the thrones mentioned here, are actually speaking about the seat of the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, as it's called, which, by the way, is a Greek word. And that's a subject for another day. So he says, first and foremost, the Mitzudah says, this was the seats of the, of the Sanhedrin. And it was also the seats of monarchy. But not because of monarchy. The emphasis here is, Hadanin din emet. Because the monarchy was supposed to rule in a just an equitable fashion. Let me take you now to the beginning of what the Mitzudah says. It's not entirely a departure from Rashi and Radak's approach. He says like this. I just wanted to make the sharp contrast between chairs and chairs, thrones and thrones. He says, Jerusalem was deserving of the Shekhinah, appropriate for the Shekhinah. Why? So, Mitzudah's David isn't disagreeing, you know, the, the, the opener that we took out of the Ma'am Lois, that this is Maila HaShlishit Shel Yerushalayim, we now speak about Jerusalem itself. It says, he says, yes, the city itself is deserving of the Divine Presence, or suitable. Why? Because there were many chairs of justice. And those are the chairs of the Sanhedrin. There were 71 justices at all times sitting in the Sanhedrin. And there was chairs or thrones of King David. But that's not about the Shekhinah per se. It's because it was a lawful, appropriate government. By the way, if anybody is actually on, I usually get some feedback. I don't get any feedback today. I don't know if that's because you're just not interested in giving me feedback or because it's not working. Just throwing it out there. Seems to be working. (sighs) 
So how do we understand this? How, how do we understand this? I, 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 th I think the way to understand this is that there's something very godly, very goodly about a, a just world, about things being lawful, legal, righteous. You know that the word tzedek, tzedek, which is, you know, we talk, we talk about the job of the courts is tzedek, tzedek, tirdof which oftentimes translates as justice, justice shall you pursue, really means righteousness. Like the word tzaddik, a righteous person. Or tzaddika. So the Me'iri, in his commentary, he says, he says three pithy words. Four pithy words, but they bring this into a, very, brings into a sharp focus. He says, Chairs of justice. What does this mean, he says? What's the virtue here? We're heaping praise on Jerusalem. It's a magical, marvelous, magnificent, wonderful city. What, why? Shivcha, it's praise. Alahanhogas hayoyshir shaba. Because it was the place in which all its doings and comings was supposed to be lawful, legal, and righteous. It was the place of the Sanhedrin itself, the high court itself. And because you had the high court and all of these justices, it was assumed that everything there was right and just. It's fascinating. So with regard to these uh, seeming two schools of thought, I mean, everybody seems to talk about the Shechina. It says, yeah, but the Shechina. But the question is whether the word Kisei means the Shechina itself. And in Radak's, in, Radak, in, in Mitzudah's David's uh, view, we are not speaking here about a chair for God. God doesn't need chairs. The chairs, refer, or the seats, or the thrones, are referring not to God, but rather to the courts and to the monarchy. But both represent the concept of the Shechina itself. Let me share with you something interesting. A according to the ruling of the Rambam, the power of the house of David, or a monarchy, is rooted in the power of the Sanhedrin, in the rule of law. Not in whoever is stronger, more powerful, whoever can force everybody to conform. That's called a dictatorship. That's not a monarchy. So in the, in the beginning of Laws of Kings, the Rambam says that this is a mitzvah. He says there are three mitzvahs the Jewish people were given upon entrance to the land of Israel. And one of them is the mitzvah of appointing a monarch. And then the Rambam goes on to say, in Halacha Gimel, in Perik Aleph, the first chapter of, this is the book of Codes, the 83rd section of Halacha, the book of Shoftim, the Laws of Kings. He says, You do not establish a, 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 a monarch only by virtue of the high court of the Jewish people, which is Shivim Zikenim of 70 elders and a chief justice, Ve'alpinovi, and by virtue of a prophet. The Radvaz, Rabbeinu David ben Zimra says, that this is taken from the first chapter of Mesechet Sanhedrin, and he says, V'yeshloimar, 
the Lekotoni, uh, he asked the question, why is it that in the Gemara we don't have, pardon me, in Sanhedrin the Gemara enumerates things that have to be done only by the court. Why isn't this mentioned as well, as one of the things that can only be done by the court? And he says, perhaps the reason is because this is not only made by the court, but also by the mouth of the prophet. So it's the prophet representing God's word and the court representing God's agency, the Torah agency of Torah. So, it's pretty holy stuff, right? So, later on, in the third chapter of these laws, we're told that the person who is guilty of sedition or rebellion against the king can pay with his life. Torah gives him permission to take him out. Even if it's not a mitzvah. He decreed on so-and-so to go to such and such a place. He didn't go, didn't leave his home. You forfeit your life. And the king can kill him. Because it says in the verse that describes monarchy. This is in the book of Samuel. It says, Whoever will rebel against the king. So the Radvaz very interestingly interjects and he says, Hai Melech, this king who has the power of life and death in a lawful and righteous manner, is Humlach Alpinovi. That's only when it's through virtue of the, of the prophet. And he says, Hiskim of Kalisol, which I'm going to presume means that it's done by an act of Sanhedrin. However, if a man rises to the throne of Israel, usurps the throne, a dictator, terrorizes or beats his opponents into submission and then rises to the throne. We had people like this. Herod was exactly this kind of person. He wasn't even Jewish. So then... We may be obligated to listen to what he says, but you don't get the title murdered b'malchus. In other words, like this. The Sanhedrin, the Rambam describes it to be, is the voice of God in our world. So how do we know what Hashem wants? We look in the Torah. What if the Torah isn't absolutely lucid or clear to us? We have an oral tradition. What if there's doubt about that oral tradition? What if that oral tradition needs to be applied? Then the Rambam is very clear. He says, then you go to the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin will give a ruling. And their ruling is the Word of God. And the Chief Justice sits in the proverbial throne of Moses. So this is the Word of Hashem. As it says in the Torah, that which the Sanhedrin ordains, God is ordaining. How then do we make a bracha on the mitzvah of the menorah? The menorah? Where in the Torah does it say you shall light a menorah? Where does the Torah say celebrate Purim? Funny how all those people who don't like quote-unquote rabbinic Judaism are very happy to light menorahs, very happy to celebrate Purim. In other words, they don't like Judaism and it gets in their way, but whatever. So this, where does it say that? Where does it say when you light, shall light Shabbat candles? God sanctified us. Mitzvot are with His mitzvahs, not people's mitzvahs. Tzivonu, He commanded us. Where did God command us? The answer is He commanded us to listen to the Sanhedrin. When the Sanhedrin says to do something, God is telling you to do something. And by virtue of those seats, 
the seats of the Sanhedrin, the seats of Jewish monarchy, which are rooted in the power or agency conferred upon them by Hashem through His Torah, the Shekhinah is actualized. When a Sanhedrin is a proper Sanhedrin, when a Melech, me based David, when a king, a Jewish king from the house of David behaves as they are supposed to, then that brings the Shekhinah, the presence of God, into the city. So the city has virtue not only of being the house of the Beis Hamikdash, but it has virtue of being the place of rules, law, order, righteousness for the whole nation of Israel. And as such, it is sacred and it is holy. And it's the place of the Shekhinah. So it seems to me that the difference between Mitsudas David's explanation and the explanation that Rashi offers, both speak about the Shekhinah. Seems to me the Mitzudah's David is speaking about the Shekhinah, he's speaking to Jewish people. There is the virtue of Beit HaMikdash, there is the virtue of the pilgrims who came up to Beit HaMikdash, those are the first two virtues discussed, and now the third virtue is that the Shekhinah is amongst us because this was the heart, this was the nervous center of Jewish judiciary, of monarchy, of legal righteous, moral, ethical conduct, and as such, it as our capital city. Whereas the way Rashi and Radak are talking about it, especially when the words of Rashi, the Shekhinah, the Shekhinah is judging the nations. This would explain the Gentile or the human connection to Yerushalayim that is not uniquely Jewish. And into this, I will now add the words of the great Rabbeinu Moshe Alshich. He says, what is the meaning of the mishpat, the kisei of mishpat, the seat of judgment? He says something unbelievable. If you want to talk about the presence of God, why do you say the house or that which seats justice? So Rashi will answer you, I presume, because the Shekhinah is for the Jewish people. And through the Jewish people, the whole world gets to bask in the glory of God. But the Shekhinah is v'shachanti b'tocham. You, Jewish people, you have a mission, a mitzvah to make a Beit HaMikdash. And when you make a Beit HaMikdash, I dwell b'tocham as a rabbi is taught b'toch kol echad v'echad in the heart, mind, and soul of each and every member of Am Yisrael. And by virtue of the Jewish people doing what they are supposed to do, Hashem's presence comes to all nations of the world. As the prophet Isaiah said, Ki beiti for my house, that is the Beit HaMikdash. Beit Tfilah Yikorei, it should be called a house of prayer and connectivity. L'chol ha'amim, for all the nations. So why do we emphasize the concept of judgment as a house or a repository of Shekhinah? So the Al-Sheikh says that this third virtue isn't disparate from the previous virtues. Just as we heard of pilgrims coming into Jerusalem in a bodily manner and that represented their souls entering into a sacred, heavenly environment at the same time. Just as we said that the city of Jerusalem below mirrors with perfect synchronicity, it parallels a heavenly city. He says, so it is also true with regard to the seat of justice. How do we know that? He says because it is written about King Solomon. That King Solomon assumed his seat, his throne. 
the Yoshev Shleima Akisei, but it doesn't say he assumed his throne. It doesn't say he assumed the throne of his father. It says the Yoshev Shleima Akisei Hashem. He sat in God's chair. <laughs> he says, It's almost impossible to hear those words. How can a person sit in God's chair? What does it mean? It means because this is the seat of Mishpat. And the seat of Mishpat, the seat of justice, the seat of judgment, the seat of law and order, is Keneged Kisei Mishpat, Shalmaila, that corresponds to the proverbial seat of judgment on high. So it's as if both seats are being saddened. When Shlomo HaMelech assumes the throne on earth, it's as if his spirit is assuming a throne on heaven. And everything is perfectly connected. Because? Because this is what happens when a monarch behaves as a monarch should. It's a pretty interesting concept. You know what's really fascinating? I found um, in the Sefer Yashmir Kaltiyalasa, he quotes... A safer with I'm called B'nai Shmuel or something. I don't, I don't I don't know anything much about it. But he says like this. He says that when it says the word Ki Shama, right? That was the start. Ki Shama for there. Sorry, this is from the Tehillah David. I apologize. This is the Yashmi. I saw it in the Yashmi. He's quoting the Tehillah David. He says Ki Shama Chaf Yud Shin Mem Hey. So Chaf is twenty. Yud is. 10, that gives you 30. Shin Memhe is the same th- three letters that's found in Shlomo's name. Only Shlomo has a Lamed. Lamed is 30. So he says, Ki Shama is the gematria of Shlomo. Ki Shlomo Yoshev al Kisot Mishpat. Ha ha. In other words, Shlomo is being, uh, being alluded to or emphasized right in the beginning. It fits beautifully with what the Al told us. And now to kind of tie it all together, I want to share with you the words of the Medrash Tanchuma. Because the Medrash Tanchuma is, is going to help us to understand and appreciate the concept of, I guess what you, we call this uh, multiple chairs. How can you have multiple chairs for God? So the Medrash Tanchuma on Parshish Kedoshim quotes a verse that is found in the book of Daniel. It's a, it's a very unusual verse. It, it speaks with many euphemisms. These are visions of kingdoms and the end of days that Daniel has. And the prophet Daniel has a vision of, of these um, very, very strange things. It's a vision of, of winds and seas and great beasts. A lion that has the wings of an eagle and feet of a person. And he has an animal which is like a leopard and has four wings, four heads. Sorry, I left at the bear. The bear with the ribs in his mouth. So we have the lion, the bear, and he talks about the leopard-like creature. And this one has wings too. And then he sees a fourth beast, fearsome, terrifying-looking thing. It's iron teeth, and it devours and crushes everything. And, he, and he's, looking at, he's looking at all this. And then he says, in the midst of all this, he sees these visions until of thrones. Thrones are set in place. 
chapter 7, verse 8, 6, 7, and 8, he talks about these, these uh, various things that he saw. I think chapter, cha- uh, verses 4 to 8. And then when he gets to verse 9, he says, Chose haves adi chorsavon. He says, I'm seeing all these visions until thrones are set in place. Va'atik yoimin, the ancient one. It's a euphemism. This is apparently a reference to God. Yasiv levushe kislag chiver. He takes a seat. His garment is snow white. His hair is also snow white like pure wool. And the throne, korsie is shvivin dinur galgiloi nur dolik. The throne is made of sparks of fire and its wheels are of blazing fire. A chariot-like throne. All right, so this is all obviously euphemism on steroids and it's a, it's a metaphor. And um, this is the way the prophets saw things through, through, through metaphor oftentimes. So what, what, what is this talking about? It says, it, says, um, it says your thrones, but then if God sits on a throne, how many thrones is God going to sit on? So one opinion is that these are referring to thrones of the nations, meaning representing the governments or dominions of the nations. And then the kings take their seats, and then God sits down. And then they're in trouble. Another opinion is that the, the seats are referring to the seats of the elders of Israel. And then God takes his place proverbially as the senior justice on the court. And the Medrash Tanchuma goes on to suggest that this could refer to either chairs of the elders, presumably a euphemism for the Sanhedrin, because the Sanhedrin were the wise people, and we know that the wise people are called the Zekenim, as the Gemara in Mesechet Kedushin says, Zesher Kanachachma, he who has acquired wisdom. And then there's the Chisot Beit David, the chairs of the house of David HaMelech. So, I think that this uh, Medrash Tanchumar is really requires a tremendous amount of study in and of itself, which is beyond the purview of our class on Tehillim. But what does it do for us? Well, it, it gives us a sense of this, uh, the, 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 the multiples here. The idea of the Shekhinah and the idea of judgment and multiple thrones is not mutually exclusive. There are thrones and governments. Thrones represent the governments. Like in Canada, we have something called the throne speech. And that's when the Prime Minister makes his speech with his government's agenda for the year. So there's, there's thrones or governments, and then God sitting in judgment. And what we're hearing here is about God judging and the terminology of multiple chairs. I don't want to say musical chairs, but <laughs> monocarcal or majestic chairs appears. And then that, so that follows the kind of the approach that was advanced by Rashi and Radak. And then we have this, the idea, as the Metsudas David emphasized it, where we're talking about the thrones of justice, the house of royalty and the Sanhedrin, and once again, the multiple thrones isn't mutually exclusive of God's presence as well. So perhaps all of these great Rishonim are, are rooting their understanding and their explanation of David and Melech's words in the, in the uh, teachings of that somewhat cryptic Medrash Tanchuma. At any rate, I think I... I think I sourced, I think that would be a, a source. And this gives us uh, a bit of an understanding as, as to what we're speaking about when we, when we are highlighting the virtues of Yerushalayim, the virtues of Jerusalem.
Now, the Sepharno, because of all this, suggests that it is not current, it's not simply a, des a description of the virtues of Jerusalem. He says, this is describing the ultimate future. David HaMelech, in essence, is describing what will unfold. Kishama, for there, says the Sepharno, in Yerushalayim, Yashvu chisay slamishpat. He says Yashvu is ka'amroi ve'alu ma'ishim ba'hartziyon lishpaitas haresav. This is a pasuk from the book of Ovadia. Ovadia, a descendant of Esau, a righteous convert, a holy man, a prophet. So he says that in the end, the Esauite power will be removed, crushed, vaporized. And Hashem's presence and dominion will be established. The Gemara tells us about this. When you want to chop down the forest, you use an axe whose handle is made of wood. So Hashem uses the descendant of Esav, of Edom, to chop Edom down. Now, as Ma'am Lois puts it, it says, Ki Shama, which sounds past tense, but the Sephardim links it to a verse that also sounds past tense but is futuristic. Kishoma doesn't mean for there, Yoshvu sat. Kishoma Yoshvu is presaging the future, just as Ve'olu, they will rise, is actually, it sounds past tense, but it is futuristic. He says, Avar b'mokim asid. It's as if sometimes the past can assume or mimic a tense that seems, the future, pardon me, can mimic a tense that seems past. You could read Va'alu, they went up to the Mount of Esau, of the Mount of Zion, to judge the Mount of Esau or not. You see, they went up to judge. So the Sepharnu says, this is the meaning. Yerushalayim, not Har Hamoria. Yerushalayim is Har Tzion. Yerushalayim is called the Mount of Zion. So here we see once again an emphasis on the concept that the entirety of the city is considered to be a repository of the Shekhinah because it is the place of judgment. It's very much in keeping with Rashi and Radak's approach. But he says, but there's also a Jewish element here. The Omri, and here he goes on to quote a verse from Malachi, He's talking about Malachi in the third chapter. Malachi in the third chapter refers to the end of days, the great day. And he says, you don't even know what's coming your way. You can't even imagine what's going to be. In verse 2 he says, this is the third chapter of Malachi. He says, Malachi says, who will be able to endure the day of his coming? Who will be able to survive when he appears in order to clear that path, so to speak? For he is like a refiner's fire. Like a launderer's soap, meaning a very powerful detergent. So what we're trying to say here essentially is that Hashem will sit in judgment. God will sit refining and purifying silver. It's a euphemism. Kesef is a euphemism that refers to the tribe of Levi, the children of Levi. And he is going to purify them. He's like as one purifies by removing the dross. 
in silver that comes out of the ground in its raw organic form or like gold that comes out, you have to burn off all the toxins. In other words, this is not just going to be a time when Hashem judges the nations, but it's going to be a time when Hashem judges all peoples. All peoples. And here Sephardim says, She'ivar ha-Mashiach gam Yisrael. Judgment, not in a positive way here, will be meted out also to the sinners of Israel. So it has a Jewish and a non-Jewish element of judgment here, and because of this it has the Shechina, and it is not only past tense, but it is perhaps even more importantly, more importantly, pardon me, future tense, the judgment that will be meted out. Just as Yerushalayim will be, Benuya will be built up again in Yetz Hashem when the Mashiach will come speedily and in our days. And that leads us, my dear friends, into the next verse. So, as such, in view of all of the above, Shalu Shloim Yerushalayim, pray, ask for the peace of Jerusalem. Yishloyu Oyhavoyich, that those who love you will be serene and tranquil. The Mitsudas Tzian says, Yishloyu is Meloshan Shalva, tranquility, a serenity, a sense of inner peace that will wash over those who love Yerushalayim. Shalu shloim Yerushalayim, says the Mitsudas David. In other words, lozois, because of everything we have learned about Yerushalayim, pray for Jerusalem. Ask Hashem for its peace. What is its peace? That the city of Jerusalem rise again as it once was. For Jerusalem, when it is, is the city of the Beis Hamikdash. It's the heavenly city. It's a city of symmetry and oneness and togetherness. It's a city of people's consciousnesses and souls soaring. It's the city of justice and judgment. It's a city that makes a difference for all of humanity. It's a city that unites and brings all of us together. It's a city of Hashem Shechina. So pray for Yerushalayim, because it must be Kimeoz Benuya. It must be built up as it was. The Mitsuda is David, who emphasizes the concept of Benuya Kimeoz, because Yishloyu Ahavoyich. It's as if he's speaking to or about Jerusalem. When you, Jerusalem, will be at peace, then those who love you will be at peace as well. This is not only about the city, but about the people. Because the lovers of Jerusalem will experience that very same serenity and tranquility when peace washes over Yerushalayim. The Malbim quite fascinatingly, says, number one, that this shalva and shalom mean two different things. He says, shalva is shalva saguf. It means inner tranquility, you yourself, which could refer both to the city and the people. Peace from within. And he says, shalom refers to shalom hachitzon, when the enemies have backed away, made peace with you. You're at peace with your hostile environment, with your aggressive neighbors. So this is the shalom and the shalva, as it can refer both to the city 
and to the people. And the Malbum says something stunning here, which is mirrored in the teachings of earlier sages. Let me first share it to you in the words of the Malbum. He says that Yerushalayim hi hoimedes chibur hagoya. Yerushalayim is what unites our nation. And if you will ask, he says, for the peace of our nation, invariably, you ask for the peace, for, this, for the tranquility of Jerusalem. And he says that this works in two ways. When Yerushalayim becomes the city of oneness and peace that it is destined to be, that will wash across all of us and we will all come together in perfect brotherhood. But he said it goes the other way also. That if you seek out the peace of Yerushalayim, then first seek out peace with your fellow. Because he says, when we are together, Yerushalayim is achdus ha'uma. Yerushalayim represents the oneness of the nation. And so if people will be roused to put their differences aside and come together in peace, then they bring forth the spirit of Jerusalem, of Yerushalayim, and that in doing so, they accelerate the process of its restoration. And they cause peace in the literal Yerushalayim. In other words, there's this marvelous symmetry between the city and the citizens. We are all citizens of Yerushalayim. We are all home, as Elie Wiesel famously observed, when we are in Yerushalayim. And when we are at peace, and when we are together, this brings us a step closer to Yerushalayim Habenuya. The Ma'am Loyes, once again, he offers a preface to this verse. He says, Ula achar shetier hameshoirer. Now that the sweet singer, the singer, of course, is David HaMelech, whose prophetic prophecies have depicted for you, narrated for you, Milas Yerushalayim, now that you know what Jerusalem is, now that you understand and appreciate its magic and majesty, then seek out its peace. Seek out the peace of the city. And he says, don't only seek out the peace of the city, but quoting the Rebbe of the Abarbanel, Rabbeinu Yosef Chiyun, who was the Torah leader of Portugal in the generation before Abarbanel. He says, don't only seek the peace of Yerushalayim. Seek out the peace of those who love Yerushalayim. And he says something which is augmented and developed later by the Yosef Tehillis which is positively chilling. Why was Jerusalem destroyed? The Gemara tells us, Yerushalayim nechirva b'galal sinas Jerusalem was taken from us. It was raised and destroyed because of unearned, wanton, senseless hatred amongst us. And so if we want to restore Yerushalayim, you want to seek out the peace of Yerushalayim? Undo the damage, undo the cause, he says. The tonight, the reason is, find serenity and peace amongst yourselves. Let there be peace amongst Israel. 
the Churban Chadash. Chilling words. Let there be peace amongst us, he says, lest it bring a fresh, a new, a novel destruction. And that's why our sages taught us the Batla Siba, Batla Mesuvav. If the cause is taken away, then the effects are vaporized as well. The problem, of course, is that you and I both don't like people, but we have very good reasons for it. Sinas Wanton? Unwarranted hatred? Are you kidding? All the people I hate, you say, I have very good reasons for hating them. This is the problem. So many of the feelings we have are confused. And when do you know if the dislike came first and then the reasons just rationalized it or the other way around? And the answer is, invariably, by and large, we don't know. So what do you do? This is the reason that Rebbe explains in one of his Maimarim, we have to focus on Ahavaschinam. Because we are confused. And because we don't have clarity about our misdeeds and inappropriateness. As it says, the Talmud says, Early generations do exactly what they did wrong. They fixed those things. And it was a, a quick few decades. And exile was over. Here we are laboring and and literally uh, suffering through centuries of exile. Almost 2,000 years, heaven forfend. Nobody, nobody fesses up to doing anything wrong. No, nobody admits to being, I am wrong, I'm wrong, they're wrong. I did nothing wrong. It says just about everybody as they continue to bicker and fight. So what do you do? The answer is free love. Try to love for free. Try to care about others unwarranted because the Avas Chinam is the only way we can seek out the peace of Jerusalem. What a powerful message is being conveyed to us by the psalmist, by David HaMelech. Across the ages, he cries out to us, get it together because when you come together as a nation, you bring my city of togetherness back into existence. The Yerushalayim HaBenuyah. The Gemara in Mesechet Megillah, in Daf Yud Zayin, the Gemara says, when it's talking about the, the order of the blessings, the blessings of the Amida service of what we call the Shmon Esrei, are, are they precise? And the order, in the precise, meaningful, and significant fashion, we have the Birchus Haminim. We have the blessing which was inserted by Rabbi Gamliel that speaks about the terrible elements, the fifth column amongst our people. And then afterwards, from there we go on and we say, Kolo Aminim, when the heretics and the troublemakers from amongst us will be removed, Mitromemes, Keren Atzadikim, then the profile of the righteous is raised. As it says in the book of Tehillim, Hashem will uproot the pride, the position, the stature of the wicked. And then, He raises Karnash Sadik. 
the stature of the righteous. And that includes the converts, the Gemara says. Includes the wise. And then what happens? And where does this happen? Where does our stature rise? Where do we rise and shine, so to speak? The very next blessing is Uvenei Yerushalayim. Aha, it's about Jerusalem. Where does the profile get raised? Be Yerushalayim. Shenemer, as it is written, Shalu Shloim Yerushalayim. Seek out the peace of Jerusalem. Yishloyu Oyavoyich. Then serenity comes to its lovers. And then you have in the bracha, Chisei David Avdecha. You hear about the throne of David Amalek, the restoration of the Davidic monarchy, and this, of course, is the coming of Mashiach. The Briskerov, the Velvola Salavechik, used to say that the prayer of Yerushalayim ends with a plea for the restoration of the Davidic dynasty. So he says, why is so? Why is that so? That's because Yerushalayim Habinuya, the rebuilt city of Jerusalem, necessarily means the restoration of the house of David Abelk, which, by the way, tells us that during the time of the second base in English, it was not Yerushalayim Habinuya. Because the Chisu David Avdecha, because the chair of the house of David wasn't there. And this all comes together with much of what we spoke about earlier, the concept of the house of David HaMelech, the Sanhedrin, the seat of judgment, and ultimately how that represents the concept of Shechina, because it's all by virtue of the Torah's power. So here's the, what the, the Yashmienu quotes in the Bnei Shmuel. He says that the idea of Yerushalayim, Yishloyu, the word Yishloyu with the words Reish Mem are, uh, that spells out Yerushalayim. When we talk about the raising, the Ram. He says Amalek is also the gematria of Reish Mem. Amalek represents the evil forces arrayed against us. And has the gematria of 240. If only we could get rid of the hate amongst ourselves. We take the yom out and we end up with Yishloyu. We end up with this inner serenity and peace. At any rate, you'll see how it's a bunch of interlocking pieces over here. It all comes together. I want to conclude with two very powerful teachings about personalizing all of this. Personalizing this, these prayers for Jerusalem, this concept of oneness amongst our nation and how that plays itself out into the restoration of the Beis HaMikdash and Yerushalayim. As we call it, Tzion and Yerushalayim, both of which represent the presence of Hashem. In the spring of 1989, the Rebbe spoke about this Pasuk. And he said, that the meaning of Shalu Shleim Yerushalayim is not speaking to the people in the days of David HaMelech. As the Radak says, Shalu, 
Bnei HaGolos. The exiles are asking for the restoration of Yerushalayim. They are asking, says Radak, what is its peace? Vishloima, who kibbutz HaGolios. The peace of Jerusalem is when her children are restored to her. Radak gives a chilling warning. He says, you should know that as long as the Jewish people are not living in peace in Jerusalem, as long as the nations will battle over Jerusalem, there will be no peace in the earth. There's this idea that uh, the nations who battle over Jerusalem The lack of peace in our world is not disparate and mutually exclusive. It's a link. It's a connection. So this prayer, this peace of Jerusalem, isn't dated. It doesn't say those who live in Jerusalem should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That means even in a time where Jews weren't allowed to live in Israel, or allowed to even live in Israel, but not allowed to live in Yerushalayim. The Romans famously renamed Yerushalayim alias Capitolina, and they forbade a Jew from spending the night in the city. No Jews lived there. During Ottoman times, there was a time when Jews were expelled from Jerusalem as well. So when you prayed for the peace of Jerusalem, who were you praying for? Not the sticks and stones, not the bricks and mortar, not the soil of trees. But Shloim Yerushalayim represents something. As the Rebbe said then, Gam kasher ein shom bayis, even when the house of Hashem is not physically present. And there is no shalom in Yerushalayim in a material sense. Nonetheless, the Jewish people have always maintained a yearning and a desire for Yerushalayim, seeking out its peace. As the verse laments in the voice of Jeremiah, She's Zion. Why does nobody seek her out? As the Gemara says in Mesechet Rosh Hashanah. That is to say, Jerusalem always has to be thought of. We always have to be seeking its peace. So what then, what then does it mean? If we aren't seeking the physical, material, actual peace of the Jerusalem of right now, necessarily. What were we seeking? What were we praying for? And the Rebbe says we were praying at all times and in every place for the representation, what Yerushalayim represents to us. It's emblematic as we discussed about the concept of Yerushalayim, the conjunction of the two words Discussed famously by the commentary of the Teisvis, quoting the Medrash Rabbah. Teisvis is found in Mesechet Tarnet on page 16, by the way. Begins the word har and it quotes that Medrash Rabbah that I quoted, that I cited in the previous episode. 
where Yerushalayim is a conjunction of the words reverence and perfection or completion. So it represents perfect reverence. So what then are we yearning for? For what do we pray when we pray for Jerusalem? We are seeking out Shleimus Hayira. We are seeking out a sense of spiritual perfection within ourselves. And we are trying to connect with others. We should be serving Hashem properly. And we should become Oyahavim. We should become lovers of Yerushalayim. We should come together as a people. And the Rebbe said this is accelerated, much emphasized by the fact that we are living in a time where Baruch Hashem we are in Yerushalayim. And many amazing, wonderful things are happening in the city of Yerushalayim. So we continue to yearn and to pine for Yerushalayim. Habenuyah! The ultimate perfection of our world which will be brought about first and foremost in Hashem's holy capital city in Yerushalayim. And I'll finish with a quotation from an undated letter that the Rebbe penned in 1974. It's also based on a letter which is, was penned in 1983. At least this is the way it's redacted in the Slager, uh, the Schottenstein edition of, of, the, uh, of Sefer Tillam. So he says that the, the city of Yerushalayim, this is the Rebbe's words as they redacted here, it's called Shar HaShamayim, literally the gate to heaven. And our sages declare that for us, the Jewish people, all prayers go through Yerushalayim. As such, when we pray to Hashem daily for our needs, we are recognizing and reaffirming that Hashem Almighty God is our sole and true provider. He alone is the source of all of our blessings. Whatever human endeavor we engage in merely channels or serves as a mechanism and a vessel. So Yerushalayim is the actual nexus, the connecting point to Shara Shamayim. And therefore, its holiness becomes the channel through which we can receive Hashem's blessing in this world. That is to say, when we pray for material welfare, for plenty, parnosa, for good health, for nachas from our children, the first thing we have to make sure is that we have Yerushalayim, that we have the proverbial gate of heaven that's open that we've opened a channel, a gateway for Hashem's blessing into our world. By making sure that our own inner base on Migdash is intact, that the walls of Yerushalayim are complete and there aren't any cracks or crevices that have developed. In other words, when a Yid lives in a Yerushalayim way, then that becomes the nexus point on a personal level. And just as Yerushalayim is the gateway for our prayers and Hashem's response in a global or universal fashion, the same can be also said for each and every one of us as individuals. Shalu shloim Yerushalayim, seek out your inner Yerushalayim. Pray and work at perfecting your own inner 
perfect, perf- perf- perfect reverence for Hashem. And that becomes the gateway to which Hashem brings us His many blessings. And so we have learned on varying levels about the power and profundity, the virtue and the superlatives of Yerushalayim, and how we must pray for its peace and seek out its welfare. And this, Be'ezrat Hashem, will be continued in future lectures and episodes to come. Thank you so much for joining today. I hope that you found this uplifting, inspirational, educational, and informative. And I look forward to seeing you back. And hopefully, our study about Yerushalayim Abnuya helps accelerate that process of universal redemption and the rebuilding of the future perfect Yerushalayim with the coming of Mashiach Bimheira Ubi Amenu Amen. Thank you so much for joining. I wish you all a beautiful day.